0: just shot up the line The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast with Stuart McFarlane and Dale Clancy That's extraordinary Welcome to this week's edition of the Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast I'm Stuart McFarlane
1: and I'm Dale Clancy
0: and this week we have an exclusive interview with former Scotland and British and Irish Lions winger Funny Stranger. <laughs>
1: The tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast.
0: Well, Dale will take a look at this week's Tight Five. One good bit of news uh, to come out and some encouraging news to come out is the fact that the, the British and Irish Lions, all being well, will have a match in Scotland at Murrayfield next June prior to their tour of South Africa. Again, fingers crossed. That, that everything works out and, and the players can
1: take part. When the announcements were originally made about potentially being at Murrayfield and the other venues that were looked at, I was really hoping it was going to be at Murrayfield. It's a good send off and it's a part that's obviously been kind of integrated into the calendar now with the Lions previously playing Argentina, I believe it was they, they, they played before they set off for previous tours. And it's the opportunity for fans who can't really travel and, and, and go on uh, an a broad tour to see the Lions before they leave and, and a good warm up and a good setting. And a good foot for the, the team to actually gel get some minutes underneath their belt and play in what should be a, a reasonably competitive test match against Japan
0: now, Another one of our type 5 topics this week to discuss at this stage in the podcast, the conundrum for Gregor Townsend Russell and Hastings out injured Duncan Weir coming in Jakob Van de Waal becomes available just days after the international with Italy but prior to the, the French game So we could have a a new half-back partnership very quickly in the the Scottish international scene before the, the Six Nations and due in no small part to two very experienced players being on the sidelines.
1: Yeah definitely Russell and Hastings being out is, is a huge blow because they've both been playing really well however it does give an opportunity and obviously to Duncan Weir he's went down to Worcester Warriors and he's been playing really really well for them it almost brings back the question that we asked Gregor a few weeks ago about do you have to leave to better yourself and maybe be noticed because it's almost like he's went down south and been noticed a little less you feel he'd probably find it easier to get into the Scottish national setup if he was still at Glasgow but obviously as things have progressed Hastings has, has made that 10 jersey his own but we've got play over the country, over Scotland and England who are playing regular starting rugby, regular <laughs> rugby for their professional teams. And hopefully, Duncan Weir has developed as a 10. He'll come in and hopefully give us that same game plan, the same go forward. He's a good tactical kicker as well. He's good with the boot. So hopefully he just does get his chance to shine. And then that potentially comes Six Nations next year, whenever that may be played. We might have three to pick from. When was the last time that's been blessed upon the, the Scottish national team? So hopefully he goes well. And, and if Van der does come in, he gives a good showing of himself as well. And then we've got a good depth at that tempo position
0: you touched on something there that i thought was quite interesting dale about players and sometimes they make a move to try and better themselves to to try and move away from the the goalpost ball of the the domestic game and the rivalry between edinburgh and glasgow and it can benefit them in terms of their overall club form here's an interesting one hamish watson now his contract is up i think it's the end of the season it's certainly 2021 by that stage spent 10 years with Edinburgh and there does seem to be a few rumours around that he could be lured to France and join Finn Russell at Racing.
1: I think it would be a good move. He's, he's obviously towards probably his peak years of his career and perhaps going to France and surround himself with better players potentially and maybe moving out of the, the comfort zone of the Scottish set up with the professional teams might be quite good for him however saying that he's been one of the standout performers for Scotland for the last two or three years maybe this is a bit of a you know a career move as opposed to obviously to get any other achievements. It's maybe a bit of safeguarding for his future because we know that the money in France is quite lucrative for players to go to. I think Finn Russell's on a fair wedge over in France and he's playing really, really well. He's again developed even further and probably got even more cocky than he was before, but it's benefited him and and it might be the sort of move that Watson likes as well. You look Hidalgo Klein's back in the squad from moving away. Hogg's doing well. Johnny Gray's doing well. Russell's doing well. So these players, and Sam Scott, I never mentioned him a few weeks ago but these players have moved away they're winning things and it might be a good move for Hamish Watson but I think that's one that's going to probably rumble on for a while
0: but the ones that have left Edinburgh and Glasgow and if you take maybe Sam Skinner out the equation in terms of his development and the, the route into the national team for him it's weakened those two professional sides. So while for the individual and for the the, the Scottish national team, there could be huge benefits for Watson going over to France if that indeed was something he decides to do at the end of a contract or at some point in the future, it's going to further weaken the two professional sides because clearly... Glasgow have never really recovered fully from the departure of Hogg, the, the departure of second row forwards, Johnny Green, the departure of uh, Finn Russell as well, and, and players even in years past.
1: Yeah, I'd probably argue the fact that they have recovered from Finn Russell, even I think Hastings has, has been really good, but I totally agree with the rest of it. I think Hogg, they've tried to, paper over the cracks even when Richie Gray left I think Scott Cummins is starting to play really really well Johnny Gray is an exceptional player but he's going to be a really hard player to try and to fill in terms of replacing him and it is maybe a little bit of a transitional period I think we've had it really good for the last couple of years we've raised the level of our expectation our play has been better but you know moving on to that the fact that certainly I've drummed on for the last couple of weeks about the depth in the professional squads now you were at the Edinburgh-Cardiff game yesterday at BT Murrayfield and obviously Glasgow and Ulster were locking horns as well so you can see probably more first hand the lack in depth What's your outtake in terms of the way they are in terms of the players moving away or where the professional teams are just now from a different standpoint
0: well the first thing I really should say Dale is that during the Edinburgh Cardiff match that the fog really came in early stages of the, the second half and I thought it was going to consume the entire stadium at one stage. So couldn't see an awful lot in, in the second half, but I do take your point. I think it's a time, an expected time, of the, the season for, from a coaching point of view where they, they are going to be severely weakened by the lack of numbers either through injury but more likely through the departure to the international scene. And it is a, a chance for both Edinburgh and Glasgow really to, to very much examine what they have and the fringes of the squad. I think Edinburgh's squad over the piece is probably that bit stronger, more ready for the the challenges of Pro 14 than than Glasgow's is at the moment. And Richard Cockrell, talking to him on on Monday evening, was saying that he's had a lot of calls in the the recent past to make Nathan Chamberlain a regular starter and giving him a, a really good run of matches, regardless of the opposition. At 10, well, the next opposition for Edinburgh is Leinster, And we've talked before about the the pathway to greatness for young players coming through the the schooling system at Leinster, how things are set up in Dublin. And it's been that way for a very long time and and they've been able to to bear fruit for a very long time. So it is an interesting time for Edinburgh and Glasgow. The money, we know, is an issue in terms of bringing in players. We know that Edinburgh, perhaps more so at this stage, Glasgow, are bringing in loan players. And it has to be a time to really test what you have coming through the academies, coming through the ranks, coming through the the age-grade system and see where these players are at. And you don't want to necessarily present a sink or swim scenario for them, but... A lot of the time, that's perhaps only the way you're going
1: to find out. Richard Cockrell, he's having rave reviews from everybody who surrounds him in the kind of setup at the moment because of the way he brings on his players, and he's really changed the mindset and the ethos at Edinburgh. I feel from the outside looking in, and he's really made them into a competitive team. He never got them over the line at the end of the the campaign last year, but he certainly made a difference there compared to what managers and coaches and whoever's been in it in the past and I feel that the two professional teams are now having to find a different answer on how we bring those players through and how we fill those voids. Hastings was maybe a little bit more advanced in filling the voids from Russell but overall there's big gaps in that team and and over time they will be filled. You look at Darcy Graham as one, he's certainly came on and made the Winger's jersey his own at Edinburgh and then potentially the (coughs) national team but you probably need a few more coming through at the same time as opposed to the dribs and drabs but Certainly, I'm sure Chamberlain would be one of the players who would really benefit from the up and coming Autumn Nations Cup and getting that run of games in.
0: I'm certainly impressed at under 20s level. And yes, mixed fortunes on for both those sides when you consider that Edinburgh. 18-0 winners over Cardiff. The, the very fact that uh, they kept Cardiff to naught uh, was impressive in itself, but two front row forwards going over for tries in a match that perhaps going to be remembered more for the, the weather conditions than for a lot of the play. That's back to back wins now for Edinburgh and, of course, Glasgow suffering a, a heavy defeat over in Belfast. So Danny Wilson's side looking to get back to winning ways as Monday Night Rugby continues throughout the month of November as a consequence of this Autumn Nations Cup. Really disappointing news coming out that Scotland's women won't get the chance to play Wales. The remaining women's Six Nations international set have been cancelled. I suppose you can understand that the Championship has been won by England, but from a Scottish point of view, after that fantastic performance and result against France they would be very much looking forward to the challenge of facing a, a Wales team that are like that. the men's side, finding things somewhat difficult and challenging at the moment.
1: I think the, the appetite to back up that performance from the French game is, you know, they will be disappointed that they can't just go and do that and undertake that challenge of beating a team who are below them. You know, it was a completely different game to the French game in terms of that they were probably going to go into that favourites and they would hopefully then back that up and climb further up the table. But it's just the nature of what we're in. I'm sure they will be disappointed, but in the long run, they then need to just back that up further down the line and, and try and get that consistency and, you know, the balance that, they, that they're they trying to achieve under Brian Eason.
0: No deal. Can you tell me, where were you on the 17th of March 1990?
1: I think after I had my snack, I had a nap at two and I'd usually get my nappy changed at about, yeah, about three, I think. So, yeah, I was only 10 months old, around about that. So I, was, I, I couldn't tell you where I was, to be fair.
0: That's the shame of youth because you missed out on uh, one of Scottish rugby's truly great afternoons and I can remember watching... The action between Scotland and England unfolding in my grandmother's house in in the centre of Duns on a black and white television when this man made his name. Tackling
1: Scottish Rugby.
0: Well, Dale, I'm sure you'd agree that uh, we're delighted. To have on the podcast this week, Tony Stanger, Scotland's joint top try scorer. He's been retired from the game a, a few years now, but Tony, you, you still hold that joint honour and accolade. And is that one that you ever worry about losing anytime soon? I do, yes.
2: another another laddie, Stuart Hogg, I think is getting pretty close as well. So, in the nature of the way international rugby is now, is a lot of games, you know, entertainment and and playing so much rugby's at a premium. So, you know, they're gone in the days where it was a kind of nine. Six as the international results. So there's going to be loads of tries. So, yeah, it's just a fantastic player. Very strong, obviously, in attack. So, yes, I think that will go very soon. But it was a while ago since I played, so hanging on with my fingernails to that record. But um, but not for long, I think.
0: How have you found this COVID world and the virtual world? I mean, clearly you're talking to us from, is it your office or your home today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How have you found the last eight or nine months yourself. And how has it affected the line of work you're in
2: these days? Yes, it really has. It's affected us all in in different ways. So I run my own coaching business. One thing that I always took from my rugby career, I was fascinated by the impact of different people on me as an individual, those who really helped to move you forward. And the ones who are best at doing that, what did they actually do? So I think this idea of coaching, which to me is really helping individuals reach their potential, is a fascinating area. So ultimately what I do... Is I've learned an awful lot along the way. Part of that in rugby, but a big part of that in my time studying sports science at Edinburgh University, and then I was head of talent at the Scottish Institute of Sport. So it's a really fascinating when you think about if you put systems and processes and people in place to help others reach their potential, then what's the different roles in that process are? What's my role as an individual? What's my coach's role? And in sport for young people, what's the role of the parent? So we set up our own business to do that about five and a half years ago. Great business and personal challenge, lots of skills to be successful at like to run your own business. And we've been making some really good headwind, making great progress and then COVID hit and, um, you know, just the nature of the, the clients that I work with, they were in a very precarious and, and difficult position. So we had to put a few things on hold. So it's yes, it's not been great, but it's allowed me time to do other things, which have been really interesting and useful. So I think it's devastating for some and families, fortunately, touch would not been affected sort of at a personal level in terms of illness with close family or friends so we found other things which I think are good opportunities within this time so it's never a great thing but definitely I think if you look hard
1: enough some good opportunities as well. You just mentioned there about obviously a few people in your playing career that had a big impact on the way that you obviously are going about your new kind of vocation. Rugby-wise who are some of the individuals who have influenced you earlier in your career which has kind of led you down this route?
2: I think I was fortunate to be born and bred in Hoyk. The environment you create round about, young people People particularly is absolutely key. So I started rugby at Wilton Primary School. Primary five was when we started doing sort of more structured rugby, and was a lady called Mae Sinclair, who was at that time it was unheard of to have a female coach in the game, but she was absolutely outstanding in terms of enthusiasm, starting you on the right path and some of the the skills that are going to be important Then, obviously from that Bill McLaren we went up to the uh, Lodge Park once a week, all the primary schools in Hoyk and Bill McLaren was there for each of us and, and to hear him commentating it on a weekend and then to be coached by him As a six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old during the week was amazing. Just you you kind of. It's only when looking back now you think how lucky you are to be in that situation. I think a lot of things have changed in Hoyt, but rugby's still very important. So it's what I'd say was very culturally significant when I was growing up. Less things to do, only three TV channels, no PlayStations, and that sort of stuff. So you were outside doing stuff in the open air with pals, and and more often than not, rugby was on the agenda. So it was a very Humble environment, you never got a chance to get above your station and and kind of anybody to kind of get too big for their boots because there were so many good rugby players in Hoyk that, you know, even if you were very good, there was still someone a year above you at school or a couple of years above you who was much better than you were. So you had to work extremely hard if you wanted to, build a reputation, so the weight of numbers, the cultural significance people like Mason Clare and Bill McLaren and a number of other teachers and coaches were fundamental in that early stage of my career, so I think important there's some names of people that you would recognise Ian McGeekens and Jim Telfer as a, as a, a building block to, to build on and why I think Hoyke were very successful in, in developing good rugby players where these people you're less familiar with who did an outstanding job and gave up a huge amount of time for only the reward of seeing young people progress
0: and when you were watching the game as a youngster growing up you were watching a side that were continually winning domestic championships or being there or thereabouts after the, the league reconstruction and the, the, the championships of seventy three, seventy-four 73-74 season when there was a more a, a fixed platform than the, the term unofficial championship. Hoyt were such a dominant force for more than a decade. There must have been great influence then of you watching wingers and centres and fly halves and trying to emulate how they played
2: the game when you got the chance to. 100. And and the system Hock had there with you played rugby at high school, but then as you know, if you left high school at 16, you could play for the Wanderers of the PSA, and then you had the four junior teams. So if, if you're a fly half, you could four teams you could play for, and that was a real strength of Hock rugby. Had four if the fly half got injured <laughs> from the Hock, then you had four guys to pick from who were all playing at the same kind of level. So and these were these were lads you could see in walking down the high street, you could see them. These were people you watched playing for Scotland at a weekend, and you watched see them going down. On the high streets were very accessible. You know, your role models and heroes were not too far away. That they felt you could never do this, and it was a great way of creating that sort of learning from others, as you as you said there. Which, what either by watching on the TV, but I, I was fortunate. I was in, involved in the high team when I was 17 years old, so I was able to go down to training and you know, rubbing shoulders with international rugby players, thinking what what's going on here? How did how did all this happen? But you saw the way they applied themselves, and let's not forget this was an amateur game. So these were lads who were, you know, working hard all day, five days a week, training twice a week and, and more, and then giving their all on the Saturday. So this is what they did for fun and what they love doing so you could see when they came to training this is not messing about this was deadly serious so that message that learning let's, how can we do things better how can we dominate domestic rugby in Scotland was a key message and uh, the mindset you had so it, it really did help to shape your commitment to the process of getting better and doing all you could to make sure the team was successful
1: i just heard you obviously mentioned the, the youth set up it's obviously a little bit different in Hoike now with playing numbers but I'm interested PSA or the Peace Gaze sometimes called in Hoyk and the Wands who did you play for and how do you select which team you play for? Because I know when I played, we got beaten heavily off both teams, but there was always good quality in both teams. It would be interesting to hear when you were playing, at what level of quality you had and how you selected which junior team you played for.
2: Yes, it is interesting. So obviously rugby was done through school and and this was before the teacher strike, which you you guys are way too young to remember. That put the kibosh on a lot of of out-of-hours activities for PE teachers. So rugby suffered a bit because of that. So I, I played through school. And and really, I went to the Wanderers because my older brother, two years older than me, he was at the Wanderers. So it was a kind of no-brainer, if you like, and they, cause he was there, they asked you to play. But it was a really interesting part of my career because at that point, unfortunately, as a young, shy laddie who didn't want to say no to anyone, on Saturdays, I was playing two games in a day, most often than not. So I'd play for the school in the morning, get home. I remember very clearly... My mum, you know, out with a hairdryer drying off, dry off my boots so I could then go and play in the afternoon. And that went on to a period of time where I think if I'd been a stronger person, I would have packed in rugby at that point because it was too much. I wasn't enjoying it. You know, I didn't want to say no to anybody, just want, didn't want to disappoint anybody. It sucked all the enjoyment out of it because two games in one day plus the associated training, you're just knackered all the time. So either a serious injury was going to happen, or I was going to find it within myself to pack it in and say, listen, I don't want to do this anymore. But Fortunately, at that point, the Hoek-Lindeen the Junior Club, they'd seen me play at the Wanderers, asked me to come and have a game. So I went there because they asked. I played just a few games for them, got involved with the Hoik setup, and then the rest is history. As soon as I started playing with Hoik, they said, listen, you're not playing two games in a day, you're not doing this. And at that point, I was also playing under-19 rugby, under-21 rugby for the South as well. But I was fortunate that either I didn't get a serious injury or I wasn't a strong enough person at that point to say, listen, I'm just not doing this anymore, I've... Uh, I'm not enjoying it. All the fun's gone out of it. I'd rather rather not. And fate took a hand and I managed to get an opportunity for Hoyk at the the right time, which is going to save me, if you like. There's no blame to anyone on that, it just it's the way things were and they wanted to give you an opportunity and um, and these were good opportunities too but it was way too much to go through with, getting any sense of enjoyment from the process.
0: Just before you made your competitive debut for Hoyt, can you recall any sort of words of wisdom from that home changing room at Mansfield Park before you, you went out and took on to the hallowed the turf down there?
2: Um, not really, but it was as a as a very shy, quiet lad. You can imagine how intimidating that might be as a 17-year-old a going into a, a changing room of very experienced individuals and just made to feel very welcome. My breakthrough, and I always have a real soft spot for the sevens, was in the... The Hoye Sevens managed to get selected. As I was, I was 17, just going on 18, had a really good day at the Sevens, and that was the thing that kind of put me on the map and allowed me then to kind of kick on with my career. But it's a, it's more of a general feeling, and and if you think about all the characters who've coached you, all have added something along the way. I used the people around about me to kind of get the best from them and take that what I think is, is the best for me and allow me to move forward. So all these influences, the people that you have, Jim Rennick was, was a real hero of mine growing up and also he coached for a while, after Cranston. Too many to mention in terms of terms of backs, but there was a lot of really good people who gave up a lot of time. So no one particular individual, but just as I said before, the environment they created and the kind of no-nonsense, we're here to try and improve and get better, was really important so that you knew you know whatever your level of commitment was there was an expectation there but it was done in a I felt in a very friendly way so you weren't scared to try something just in case it went wrong but it was there was an expectation there you know we need to work hard here if if we want to be as good as we aspire
1: to be. You made me nervous there Stuart asking what the pre-match chat would be in a hoi changing room <laughs> for two levels the language that would be used and the language that would also have to be interpreted so uh, you made me nervous about what reaction was going to come out there.
0: I was going to also ask you there about the profile of the teams and the individuals playing those teams at that time would be interesting because you would obviously have terrestrial television exposure with rugby special featuring regularly. So the wider rugby community would get to know the skills of a young Tony Stanger pretty quickly because you would be making these sort of periodic appearances on the screen as well as in front of much larger crowds than than clubs are expecting to get these days.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. It felt a big deal for me, definitely. You know, there was the usual, the Scots were in the Glasgow Herald as it was, and then the Herald, there was big write-ups on all, all the different teams. You know, your your Division One teams, they all had a write-up, so you could see what, you know, your Norman Rails of the world used to think of you as a, as a player. And as you say, rugby special, it was a, a thrill when you were on that game, and it would be a good half an hour of highlights, such as there were in those days. If you do happen to watch an old game, one of the things I did during lockdown was to find an old video recorder in the loft and my mum had kept some recordings of rugby special, but I'll not lie to you, it was pretty hard to watch in terms of the... Uh, it was the classic kick, the kick-off from halfway over, just over the 10-yard lines. The, the forwards would catch it. There'd be a little bit of a... Whatever the forwards do, sort of push up against each other and Greg Oliver would get it and kick it to touch and then we'd start with a line-out. It was, it was pretty much... Uh, that was the, the norm and... Uh, and often by then sometimes the wingers had still had white shorts. Although well, Colin Gas always had white shorts, he was a standoff, but that was one of his trademark. He never got his shorts dirty. So it was a, it was it was nice. The exposure was good and um and it was a real clear path as well. Hike south of Scotland, and then maybe at that time there was Scotland B, which means anybody who didn't have a cap. So that was a, as a route, and then there was the national team. So it was quite, it was, it was clear. But you knew if I'm playing in the Hoyt team and I'm getting regular games, then you know I'll be on the radar probably of the South team. So that was just a nice shop window that people are aware of of Hoyt as a team, and, and they were certainly at that time. So it was a, a great place to be if you had aspirations to want to move up.
0: Am Thinking that you bypassed Scotland B and went right into the the full international setup for your your first game would be almost this time of year. In fact, mid-November against Fiji in uh, an autumn test in 1989. That's
2: right. Yeah, no, that's right. Because the Lions the tour in 1989. So I went on a, a Scotland tour to Japan that year, which was my first real s- selection outside of the South, and then came back and it was it was autumn international So Fiji was my first selection, which was um, yeah, it came about a bit, sort of fairly bizarrely I just showed you how the system worked in those days again showing my age but you used to get a letter through the mail to find out if you're in the team or not so obviously if you thought that was an inkling you'd be looking out for the postie but of course I never had an inkling at all but it was a, a journalist who actually phoned on the the morning the letters were arrived and said so, you know so I found out in a way which I probably I would, I would like to found out in a different way rather than a journalist phoning you but um, so I'm not quite sure how they found out before I did but it did show you how things worked maybe in those days so but it was a massive thrill and Again, I, I can't stress strongly enough how, as a youngster, 21 years old, if I was a wee bit on edge going into a, a hike environment, imagine what that is like suddenly going into a Scotland environment. So with the players, particularly the backs, the, the Hastings, were extremely welcoming. And I am member making sure that I got a touch of the ball in the first few minutes just to kind of settle me down. So it was, um, yeah, a real surprise, I suppose, in, in some ways, although I kind of felt may, maybe there's a chance for it, for it to come and then to, to score two tries in the first game was kind of, pinch yourself kind of stuff.
0: The two scores and and maybe the nature of that particular game helped you because it was a very, very open game. I remember a very entertaining sort of contest between the two sides. And then you find yourself a a constant member, a regular member of the squad going into 1990 and four Five Nations games that will live long in the memory of, of every Scotland supporter starting off in Dublin and finishing. Don't need to tell you what happened early in the second half at Murrayfield. On the 17th of March that year. So, as, as a group of four international matches, uh, you, you must look back at those with great fondness.
2: Yeah, and as an introduction, again, it kind of set my expectations in a way. So, played Fiji, played Romania just after that. You know, we won the games quite convincingly, I suppose. In that day and age, you would expect to, you know, score, I think, five tries in those two games. And it was into the, the five nations as it was. I strongly remember, you, you probably, you, you will remember there was a guy called Keith Crossan played on the wing for Ireland. So that was my first opponent, direct opponent in the, the Five Nations. And he really taught me what really international rugby was really about, you know, not a big guy, but ran great lines, fast, elusive, hit you really hard in the tackle. So, and that was not not, not a huge amount of rugby in the game, but great to win away in Ireland. And then the, the, the next games just came one after the other. So you just kind of, you know, my expectation was this, We've got a chance here, and then we did the right things, and when we obviously the the outcome everybody knows it was almost like as i was 21 going on 22 at the end of that championship it was almost wouldn't that have been a nice way to have been maybe 31 going on 32 to say this has been you know the end of your career because it was some certainly some ups and downs with the national team after that but um it was certainly a great way to start and as you well know i've never watched the game myself I used to obviously watch record the games and then watch them back but i never did for that, that final england game because i just felt like it was a special memory and you know, Let's not spoil it by looking to see how you actually play. Just let's enjoy the, the emotions that, that came with it. But I've certainly seen the try a few times. It gets rolled out and now and again. Just to remind us that um, you know we can win the whole thing uh, every now and again.
0: Can you still feel the pain in your shoulder when you watch the clip of you reaching up to try and clutch and then ground the ball cleanly with Underwood coming in and Finlay Calder hoping that if you do spill it and knock it backwards he can emulate his brother and score.
2: I <laughs> know that, yeah, that was there, because literally before that, I don't have your time for the story, but the, people asked me what did it feel like leading into that game, and ultimately the whole week prior to it was I wasn't sure if I was going to be playing or not. Hoyk at this point had struggled a bit more, so the, the games were every two weeks rather than every week. So the, the weekend between you went back and played for your club, I was always keen to play for Hoyk. Some players decided not to play. I did hurt my collarbone, went to the training session on the, the Sunday after, in agony, couldn't train, and there was a massive question mark over whether I would play or not. So the medical treatment was certainly very good, but it, but certainly it's. Um, I think nowadays I wouldn't have played that game. They'd have had a scan. They'd have said, "Listen, there's no way somebody else would have been in." But I was given a chance to wait until. Wednesday. The backs used to meet on Thursday morning and do our, our back stuff and then there was a team run. The, the forwards used to have to meet on the Wednesday night because they were um, obviously were not as good as the backs and had a bit more work they needed <laughs> to get done. So I had to go up with the, the backs on Wednesday night just to kind of test the shoulder and see how it was. And um, Jim Traver was in charge of a, of a racking session. So I remember going into the changing room with all the forwards. There was all the forwards, me and Roger Baird. I thought, what's the you're doing here? And I suddenly twigged very quickly. Well, I know how Roger's here, just in case I, I don't make it. Got through the rucking really quite sore. Agony Thursday and Friday, but um, it was a kind of pain management issue. So it was nothing sort of fundamentally wrong other than a lot of nerve pains. I genuinely never felt it in the game, but it was uh, agony for about three weeks afterwards. But definitely worth it.
0: What were the celebrations like? Can you remember that the evening of that victory? Of course, it, I think it, from recollection, it was Jim Telfer's Fiftieth birthday as well. That may or may not have had uh, any additional impetus into how you approached the celebrations.
2: It, it, do you know? It's interesting because it was. A, this is a, a, not not telling tales out of school, but the, the usual sort of scenario was that you know, you train all week, you you'd, um, you play a game. You had work on Monday, but you, this this was a thing where you know everything was laid on. So there was a drinks reception, it was a big dinner, and then you'd you'd go out. There was a maybe a unwritten law that you would just go and get as much drink as you, down your neck as you could, and then have? Horrible day on Sunday. Go back to work on Monday. We just really want to soak in the occasion and remember it and enjoy it and not feel rough the next day. And we, so we had the dinner. And those days, there was a table of the back You sat next to two different English players. Yeah, they were disappointed, but it was you got to know them a bit more and and uh, a bit of a, a bit of a chat with them. We went out afterwards. I remember going into bars and you were kind of clapped in the door and there was champagne on the the bar when we got up to the the ordering and it was you know it was just it just brilliant that the whole atmosphere was amazing and. uh Probably the least drunk I've been after an international, but really, yes, yeah, I remember that vividly. It was. I felt like we'd done something pretty special. I think I'm sure the 84 Grand Slam were a bit annoyed because there was a massive amount of time between the first and the second, and then uh, they didn't have enough time to bask in their glory, and suddenly a third one came along, and uh, now we've had what is it, 30 odd years now to uh, to bask in the glories. So hopefully, it's not too long till the next one, but it just it was just great, great fun. And you do a lot with these players, and I see them. You know, all of them every now and again. You know, you've got a lot of good shared memories, passion for the same thing, and lots of good fun we had. I'm sure players have fun fun now as well, but it was um, great fun, great, great memories, and great friendships that are built up over a long time.
1: So, obviously, the mask isn't slipping. You didn't drink a lot, but who did? Somebody, there must have been something for that night. <laughs> there
2: Undoubtedly, undoubtedly would be. Uh, uh-huh. undoubtedly would be there. Some had a little bit less restraint than I, but uh, I can't name names that would be... Uh, I can not name didn't names. <laughs>
0: But by the time you clinched the, the Grand Slam Championship and then scoring the winning try as, as, as you did and, and sort of then, at that moment, entering Scottish rugby folklore, you became a very established figure going to a home World Cup 1991 and then going to South Africa four years later. How was the, the travelling aspect as you did get a little bit older and more of a senior member of the camp because that's another side of the 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 game you'd get to see so much of the world and i guess there'd be an appreciation of you being part of a south africa world cup because that was a huge sporting occasion for the nation at that time
2: yes no it was and and world cups are fairly new you know i was growing up they didn't have world cups until you know kind of i was more of an established teenager really before the 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 first world cup so it was, these are great things to be part of, knowing how's this going to go. And now it's obviously such a massive part of the rugby calendar. And I've been fortunate. If I think about the travelling I've done just because of rugby, and you'll be able to see the world. And that's why I wouldn't change the era I played in, because I remember very clearly the first trip we went to New Zealand in 1990, just after the Grand Slam. We trained hard, we had fun, we saw a bit of the country, we did the touristy things, brilliant eight-game tour, moved around both islands. You know, a really enjoyable trip. And then the first professional tour I went on all that touristy stuff was gone and it wasn't about going for nights out but it was just unfortunately we, we took away that element I guess what I thought touring was about was having some fun meeting the, the locals seeing a bit of the country so I've been very fortunate to travel and do a number of things. To your point about, I guess, me as as you get older, I, I think because I'm an introvert, I'm a real thinker. So I'll be 100% honest and say there was an awful lot of things that we did in rugby when I came into, say, the Haute team or the national team that didn't make any sense to me were certain ways that we trained, the things we did physically, why we were doing 10 laps of the pitch to form up when, to me, surely the game is about power and speed and skill rather than you know running at a slow pace for a long time. So, But I'd never say that when I was a young person and really it's the reason I went back to university as a mature student because I thought if I genuinely want to get the best out of myself as a player, I need to understand more about this and I couldn't really find the answer so going back to study and do a four year sports science degree was the only way and it was the best time of my life in terms of learning stuff every day and then being able to apply it in a, in a real world setting to help myself move forward and and lo and behold, a lot of the stuff that I learned is now commonplace and place in- not only rugby, but a number of different sports. So we've embraced sports science an awful lot more. So that, that's certainly been a massive change. So a little bit of a shame now. I don't think you, you, teams are not going for your eight-match tours anymore. They're going in and out, playing internationals, coming home again. I think that's a bit of a shame because I love that. And you got a chance to really get a flavour of a country rather than, rather than just the kind of flavour of the rugby population. And I think this idea of keeping moving forward, the acceleration in terms of development of, of players has, has really accelerated. and I became a wee bit more vocal and asked more questions and I think that was good for me to come up my shell and just contribute more rather than sit and listen and not say anything, actually contribute to things. So that my t- personality type, that took me a while, but I feel I was able to do that the more, uh, the more I progressed.
0: Was your interest in the coaching and, and maybe the analytics of the game then at all a factor in you making that transition from the amateur game to the professional game given your age at the time you would know that you would still have some playing years left in you but it was this you know, groundbreaking opportunity an exciting opportunity for players like yourself that were established at that international level to then go on and, and see what life would be like as one of the, the players making the transition from amateur into professionalism
2: Yes it, it was it was a very conscious decision for me to say listen, what, what do I want to do no disrespect to the jobs that I had, but my passion was playing rugby and trying to get the most out of myself. And I did a number of different jobs straight from school that were kind of allowed me to continue to do what I love. But then I thought, well, that's going to end. That's going to finish. So, so what, what will I do after that? So I was really interested in. I say, a lot of it was based on some good coaching, but a lot of it was based on some coaching. I thought, why are we doing this? That doesn't make any sense. Why do we practice this thing over and over through the weekend? We're still poor at the weekend. Or why do we do something for for one week and focus on that and it gets better and something else gets worse. So I was really, really interested by that. I was able to kind of find ways to kind of learn a little bit, but going to uni was the key thing. And I've, that's really what's allowed me to do what I'm doing now is that level of education to get the job at the Institute of Sport, to get myself into coaching, to add a number of things, strength and conditioning and then individual skills coaching. So really that's where that came from. And I've just extended that now to not just only working in sport, but working in business as well, because it's exactly the same challenge. How can you as a, an individual help other people to reach their potential so what is your role, what does an individual need to do and what do you do, so I'm fascinated by that and they're certainly finding the right sort of business who are interested in answering that question and building your own skill sets as a coach, whether you're a manager of two people or 200, then Are you any good at doing that? Because it's key, particularly in the world as we see at the moment. Suddenly the skill set changes and we've got to be able to adapt. Are we good at doing that as individuals? And are we good at helping people to do that as coaches? So it's been uh, what I wanted to do. I didn't struggle with the transition from playing to to what I did next because rugby is not who I am, it's what I did. So who I am is someone who's interested in a number of different things. So I'm able to transfer that. I think with three lovely kids, I say to them, listen, don't find yourself by what you do. That's just what you do, who you are as a different person to that, which means you can then chop and change and move to different things. So I've been able to do that quite comfortably. I think I said to you in the the emails, I don't follow rugby super closely because I love playing it. I genuinely did. It was a brilliant game. But... I've got other interesting things in my life now so I keep tabs on it but I'm certainly not someone who who watches every scrap of every game that's on every every week
1: I think that's so interesting because I finished playing rugby early and I think that you you almost become so attached to playing rugby that it does encompass you so much that you you almost stress yourself out at the end that you think what is my next step fortunately for me I've ended up in a, a good job and a good career but a lot of people do. It's a be-all and end-all. And it's interesting to hear you actually say how open-minded you were to the fact that playing rugby was something that you did. And when you scored that try against England, I was 10 months old. But I know the name Tony Stanger, you're synonymous with Scottish rugby, but it's just so interesting to hear your outlook. That doesn't define who you are. It's really interesting.
2: And it's important, my work at the Institute, because I saw a lot, we worked with athletes in a number of different sports, and some people really struggle in it. If I was trying to sort of summarise, I think it is because that's who they felt they were, a swimmer or a gymnast or a hockey player. that's what you do if that's who you think you are then it's going to always going to be difficult when you stop that when you're in maybe late 20s early 30s and then what do i do next And there's that emptiness and space in your life which can be difficult to fill sometimes so i would encourage people to think that way that's not who you are i'm a father i'm a i'm a son i'm a brother i'm a husband i'm all i'm all those things i have interests and i love reading i love playing golf you know we i do all those sorts of things that's who i feel i am as a person so rugby was what I did and I I applied who I am to that process but when that was gone I just applied it to something else and allows me to live a life of you know challenges and interests and and um, and certainly didn't struggle with that transition I was lucky I was 33 34 I got to make a decision right enough's enough rather than say I've got an injury or, or or anything that came that way so then okay right what's what's the next challenge you know I loved that it was brilliant met some brilliant people had some great experiences okay what's next so there was no big empty void in the life that I was trying to fill with something else and I would encourage anybody who wants to go into professional sport to try and think that way because it allows you to still get the most out of yourself as you're going through that but then it allows you to move on and do the next thing whatever that might be in your life and take all the stuff you learned with you which I absolutely have done but um, but not have this kind of dark hole that you sometimes can fall into thinking right, okay, what, am I, what the hell am I going to do now
0: Tony thank you very much for your time it's uh, been a real pleasure Having a chat with you, reflecting on aspects of your career, and learning more about what you've been doing since you retired from playing the game, uh, we we'll certainly wish you well for the future, and uh, hope that the situation with COVID perhaps in some way can carve out a few more opportunities for you, because it, it sounds a, a very worthwhile and a, a very interesting project that you're at the centre of at the moment.
2: Definitely, no, I really, really appreciate the chance just to, to talk about. It. I think it's. Um, you know it's all about people isn't it you know we want to help people that are that are struggling a little bit so if you can be good with people and helping them to see things in a different perspective and help them to keep moving forward even when we're facing difficult times I think you've done a good job there's some little bit snippets of good news I think coming heading our ways so let's latch on to that and let's do what we can to help each other to move through it
0: Tony Stanger many thanks
1: thank you thank you The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast.
0: Dale, delighted to have Tony Stranger on the podcast. Really fascinating insight into someone who made that transition from the outer game into the professional game. And then his moved away from the sport almost entirely to forge a very interesting career in coaching and developing and nurturing talent whether it be in sport or whether it be in business and for him communications is is absolutely key.
1: You know it was a different sort of interview than probably the first two we've had but it was equally as as interesting. The things he was saying really I felt resonated well with me. I think that I was at a point where rugby was everything that you done. I, I was brought up at a rugby club I was probably conceived in a rugby club but i was uh I was really ingrained in rugby, and when I did have to finish playing and I wasn't an option to play rugby anymore there is a void to fill and and when he was saying things about the fact that rugby is not who he is and he can do something else I think that's probably the words I've, I've never been able to kind of put in place it's it really kind of triggered a few kind of like rung off a few alarm bells in my head when he was saying that because I thought it was really intelligent insightful a great role model for people who you know need a bit of direction as well with things like that and especially just now when players maybe don't get the access to their rugby clubs and have to try and find other avenues for their interests and to keep their mind active so it was really really interesting I thought it was a, a great interview
0: Yeah, I think it will resonate, clearly has resonated with with yourself and and will do with with a lot of people. And we thank Tony again for taking the time to speak to us on the the Tackling Scottish Rugby podcast. Just before we finish then, Dale, the Autumn Nations Cup, of course, itself has been conceived partly as a consequence of of COVID-19. It begins with Scotland over in Italy to take on the Italians in Florence they then face home matches against France and and Fiji. Out of that group of four teams then, realistically, are Scotland looking at finishing second, but they've still got a very good chance of topping the group?
1: Yeah, I I think so. Again, there's a few... Actually, they're all difficult games. Italy run England really close in the first half just by... Playing a kind of ugly rugby. It was literally just kick it back. And if it wasn't for England actually managing the game, I feel that England probably would have run away with it in the first half. But it was very like high school rugby. It was uh, as soon as they were anywhere near the 22, they kicked it downfield. But there was a lot of power up front. Paledri is a really good player. You know, they've got a lot of good ball carriers and aggressive players as well, especially in Italy and out with the Six Nations they'll probably want to try and do something as well because, you know, they've not won a international against these sort of teams for a long, long time. So a difficult game away from home against France. We've beat them at home already in the last 12 months. So why can't we do it again? I know they're playing some of the best rugby they've played in a long time. But at home, if we can manage the game, which I feel like we've started to do a little bit better, if we can manage the game and start to frustrate France, then it, it just might be, again, things fall into place and we can get that win. Fiji. You never know what kind of team, like France, you never know what team's going to turn up. They could be excellent and rip us to shreds or again they could force it too much and have a lot of errors but they're starting to really be known as a bit more of a force, get that structure into their game as well. I know Richie Gray is coaching them at the breakdown as well so they'll be well disciplined in terms of competing at the breakdown and trying to frustrate Scotland. So it's one of those groups that we could potentially finish top and we could potentially finish bottom. That's the way we are at Scotland now as a nation. We probably can't rest on our laurels too much to say yes we'll. We'll beat Italy and Fiji And will hopefully compete against France Those games are all difficult Especially as Chris said a couple of weeks ago You play Fiji last just when they're into their stride And potentially when they've got nothing to lose Throw the ball about for fun You just hope it's, it's maybe a little bit slippery underfoot And they can't get the, the sort of hand skills in That they, they usually get But I don't know what your outtake is it. Do, do you think that this is a meaningful competition for Scotland? Do you think it's something that we need to be targeting to win Or do you think it's something we need to target to develop?
0: I think when you're a side, whether it be a club side or an international side, seemingly on the up, I think you take any competition, regardless of the teams that you're playing against, and take it on. I think you have to treat it very seriously. I'm sure that the Scotland coaching staff will be, and I think you've got to try and excel and use this as an opportunity. I think it's going to be a, a very meaningful benchmark ahead of the Six Nations, and we genuinely don't know exactly when the, the Six Nations Championship will take place, but any kind of success in this competition is, is certainly going to be a, a nice warm-up for a, another Six Nations campaign, where you know if, again, Scotland can get a further two or three victories in this competition, And they can come into a six nations maybe on the back of six wins from seven matches, something like that. Then uh, that would, you know, give them huge confidence. And uh, you, you look at again football managers that years ago would prioritise the English Football League Cup. That was really important to Jose Mourinho, to Brian Clough, to people like that because it was the the first trophy you could win in the season. But you were winners. And you could use that as a benchmark then to to move on and perhaps to to contest and and win greater prizes with no disrespect to the the competition. Scotland will perhaps look at that in a a similar light. I think there's an appetite within the Scotland squad to take on all comers at the moment. And that's because there's a bit of confidence there and real belief that with this defensive stability that they have now, that they can give anybody a game particularly at home. But you're right, there is the flip side where if they have an off day, then a lot of hard work that has gone on in the background and on the the training pitch over this very truncated international year is perhaps going to be overlooked with one bad performance. So we, we shall see.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's a slow-burning process for Scotland. I think we're still in a, an ongoing development phase where the professional team's getting more competitive and in turn, the, the national team is getting a little bit... Well, it has been more competitive for, for longer, so it's going to be an interesting tournament and it's accessible as well for me because I've got Amazon Prime so I can watch most of the games. So
0: Yes, a little plug there for the broadcaster of the, the competition. Well, Dale, when we next meet, we'll at least know how Scotland have fared in the opening match of the Autumn Nations Cup and we will have primed and ready another guest another very special guest as part of our series of exclusive interviews with various well known names and faces from around the Scottish game but good catching up with you again
1: yeah definitely good catching up and hopefully you get to, to watch all the rugby this weekend and we can catch up again same time next week
0: and no more fog because uh, Murrayfield certainly on Monday night, that was no fun. But uh, yes, uh, from myself, Stuart McFarlane.
1: And from me, Dale Clancy.
0: Thanks for listening. <laughs> oh, it's the tackle just shot of the line. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast <laughs> with Stuart McFarlane and Dale Clancy. That's extraordinary.